Good evening again as we start the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. We already had prayer, but let's have another one as we begin Hebrews. We ask, Lord, that you'll be with us as we study this chapter, chapter 11 in Hebrews. We ask for thy divine guidance and wisdom. Help us to understand the meaning of these truths and how they apply to us today. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. As we begin the book of Hebrews, you will notice in my handout that I gave to you that Hebrews 1 through 3 contain a classic definition of faith. And we find that verses 4 through 40 itemize examples of people who remained faithful to God and steadfast in their faith in spite of great obstacles. Emphasis is given especially to Abraham and Sarah, who were very important to the Hebrew people. And as we go through this, I think you'll, you'll kind of have a few questions. Why were certain people included in this, and maybe some others weren't? But it's amazing how many people are actually packed in to this chapter that maybe we don't notice. But let's begin. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That is the classic definition of the word faith. In plain words, it's the, it's the substance of all that you are looking forward to and hoping will come true. Even when you can't see it, there's no evidence of it materializing, but you're hoping for it. One thing about faith, faith is another form of hope. Hope is never in the past. Hope is never in the present. I don't say, boy, I hope that Bob and Mary make the meeting tonight. I don't have to hope. They're right in front of me, right? Okay. I, I don't have to say, boy, I hope it doesn't rain yesterday. That's behind you. Hope is always in the future. And because of this, what is faith? Faith is trusting that God will change your future into what will be to his greatest glory. So as we look at that, that's a definition you might want to memorize if you haven't already. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Your dad used to say that hope is what? Desire with expectation. I like that. That's good. And I'm sure we can think of other definitions, but this is the one that Paul gives. As we look at verse 2, notice it says, For by it elders obtained a good report. The elders of old, they had good sermons about the way that God had led in the past and encouraged the people to look forward to God's leading in the future. Look at verse 3. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Now, what does it say in John 1.1? 1, 1? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. And he is the one that spoke things into existence. It's not a big bang. It's a big, big word that brought things into existence. 
And, you know, scientists tell us that uh, matter and uh, energy are interchangeable. What if God spoke and that energy from him materialized? You see, it says that he spoke these things into existence. They were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. I think I mentioned this before. In front of me, I have a table. It's made of material. I can lift up the cover here and see the table. But I'm told, I haven't seen it myself, I'm told that this table is made up of molecules and, even further, made up of atoms. I can't see an atom. I can't see a molecule. Things I can't see form something I can see. How much, you know, how much Paul wanted to pack into this, we really have difficulty unpacking it all. He's the author of all things. We accept that he is a God of love and has our best interest at heart. Even when right now, materially, in our lives today, we may be having all kinds of problems. But do you ever have something and you say to yourself, why did that happen to me? Oh, that was terrible. Then later you found out it was to your good. Anybody ever had that experience? Oh, I've had that many times. Yeah. Maybe you say, oh, I lost a job. Why did God let me lose that job? All of a sudden you get a better job. Maybe more pay or better hours or whatever. So we find that God works in our behalf. He's a benevolent God. And it says, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. What made it a more excellent sacrifice? Because his faith transcended into actions. You see, he believed enough to obey God. And it says that he had a more excellent sacrifice because it was mingled with faith. And that brought about obedience, which by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. Abel is the first martyr in the Bible. He's the first one who died for his faith. The name Abel, as I mentioned before, means what? It means nothing. It means a breath, uh, a vapor. He's here today and poof, he's gone. Okay, so we find it meant nothing. Materially, it wasn't anything that we remember Abel for. We don't remember him for his fancy house or his children or his wife or anything. But we remember him for his faith. Now, Cain... His name meant obtain or get. I have begotten of the Lord, is what his mother said when he was born. His name symbolized that he was materialistic. He wasn't interested in the spiritual things. He was interested in the material things. And when he didn't get it, he got mad at his brother. Why did God not accept his offering? Cain brought the produce of his own labors. 
He brought the produce of his own labor to God. Good vegetarian diet he brought. You know, carrots and, and beets and maybe some corn. I don't know what he brought. Maybe a watermelon. But anyway, he brought these things before the Lord. He said, see what I have grown. You see here, right at the very beginning, you're getting a conflict of righteousness by faith as opposed to righteousness by works, which did God accept? Righteousness by faith is symbolized in Abel. And this is the conflict right down through the ages. Every, every pagan religion, every man-made religion, is based on righteousness by works. What I can do you see, when in reality, it's based on what Christ has done, you see. What he has done for us is what makes him our Savior. What he does in us and through us makes him our Lord. And so, this is, uh, you can see that there's a lot of symbolism that later on, the Bible builds upon. And as we go on, notice what else it says here. It says that his example still speaks to us today. We can still learn lessons of faith from him. Let's look at verse 5. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. Now, what does translate mean? Yeah, it was taken from one place to another, okay? When you translate a language... You take it from one language and put it into another. In this case, he was physically translated or transported, we would say, from here to someplace else. And where was he? Now, it's interesting that this Enoch, Enoch was 65 years old before his son, um, Methuselah, was born. And Enoch walked with God for another 300 years. And Enoch actually preached to the people of his time. He was the seventh from Adam. He preached to them that they needed to get their act together. They needed to come back to the Lord and follow the example of Abel rather than Cain. And because God was going to have a judgment that would be coming soon. My friends, isn't that our message today? Isn't that the three angels' message? That we are to be examples to tell people, you know, God has, is going to judge the world. And we need to be getting our lives in order so that we will be in the ark of safety, which is Christ, at the end time. And so we find that Enoch, he, he knew that the flood was coming. Matter of fact, Enoch knew that the world would be destroyed twice. Once by water and once by fire. And when you get into the uh, book of Jude, it talks a little bit about Enoch. But how did we know that he knew about the flood coming? He named his son Methuselah. Methuselah means after me comes the deluge. How long did Methuselah live? 969 years? 
That's a long time, almost a thousand years before he is predicting the coming of the flood through his son, before Noah even appeared on the scene. And because of this, the people should have known, as long as Grandpa Methuselah is around, they're, they're safe. But when Methuselah dies, the flood is coming. It just so happens that, of course, Noah was born. He, Noah knew Methuselah. Uh, he, he talked with them and met, met him. But the year that Methuselah died is the year that the flood came. Stop and think about it. This is the year 2016, right? Uh, we just celebrated the 240th anniversary of our nation. And I believe that God put this nation here for a reason. And I think that God guided in its, its uh, construction and uh, he has a purpose for it. But just stop and think about it. Our nation has been here 240 years. Do you realize that that's twice as long as Noah preached to the people of his time? God has given us religious freedom in America to turn to the Lord and elevate the word of God and to usher in a righteous people, a righteous nation that would be a light to the world. He's given us twice as long as the people in the time of Noah had. And we need to be careful because there is a judgment. And if we are not prepared, we can find ourselves outside of the ark instead of in it. Now, how old was, how old is Enoch? Anybody know? How old is Enoch? Ah, you're all talking among yourselves. I got you in a controversy here. Let me put it this way. Who's the oldest man who ever lived? He said Methuselah. No. Methuselah is the oldest man who ever died. His father, Enoch, is the oldest man who ever lived. Why? He's still alive, right? Enoch never died. He went to heaven, and he's still alive in in heaven today. When Jesus comes back, he's going to come back with Jesus, you see. So the oldest man who ever died was his son, Methuselah. And so we find that Enoch, he was translated that he should not see death. He is also a symbol of of those who will live to see Jesus come. Because Methuselah stepped from this life into the next life without ever dying. And when Jesus comes back again, there will be a people on the earth who, when Jesus comes back, they will step from this life into eternal life in the twinkling of an eye without ever dying. Now, that's not counting the ones that come up out of the grave because they died like, like Methuselah did. But here we find that he later on appears talking to Jesus on the mountain um, as a symbol of those people at the second coming. 
And don't forget, Moses died and was resurrected. So Moses and Enoch symbolize two different groups of people. The righteous dead who come up and the other, the living who step from life into life. And it says, God translated him for before his translation, he had a testimony that pleased God. Verse 6. Notice this now. Is it impossible to please God? We just said Enoch pleased God, right? He had a testimony that pleased God. But is it possible not to please God? Notice what it says in verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. That's why our works will never get us into heaven. You see, we are saved by God's grace because of our faith. Our works will never save us. Now, can our works get us lost? Yeah. You can be lost because of your works, but your works won't save you if they're not mingled with faith, you see. And so we find, for he that cometh to God must do two things. Number one, he must believe that he is. What's that do to the atheist? You see, you must believe God that he exists before you'll ever please him. And secondly, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So there are two things here. We must believe that God exists to have salvation. And secondly, we must seek for his salvation. We must seek the way to salvation through Christ. And so this is what God promises to his people. Now, verse 7, he goes to Noah. Notice how he's skipping generations. There were people in between here, but he's picking out chief examples. And this, he's listing a catalog of heroes of faith. And it says, by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, it had never rained. How was the, the lawn and the grass and the trees and flowers watered before the time of Noah? It says that there would be a dew that would come up at night and it would water the plants. But water coming down from the sky, that wasn't in God's original plan, you see. And so when he started preaching, you know, the sky's going to open up and these big clouds are going to start pouring down on us. People say, you're nuts. Scientifically, that is not the way it has been. Therefore, it will not be. That's called uniformitarianism, upon which evolution uh, was based. And it says, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear. Now, when it says fear here, it isn't the ah, afraid type fear, although I imagine there's an element of that in it. It's the respect type of fear. I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but I think I did in one of the seminars. My little Irish mother only came up to my chin. And you know I'm a giant. And uh, 
my mother only came up to here, I could put my, my chin on her head. But my mother had the look. You know what I mean by the look? And when I did something wrong, all she would have to do is give me the look. Whoa. I knew better. One time I remember distinctly, I was with some friends of mine, and I was about to do something that I knew was wrong. I shouldn't do it. And I'm not going to tell you because it's none of your business. Okay? But I was about to do something. And just as I was about to do it, all of a sudden there flashed in my mind a picture of my mother. And the thought entered my mind. Would you do this if your mother was here? Felt like a bolt of lightning going through me. No way would I do this if my mother were here. And I backed off. You see, I wasn't afraid of... uh, Well, maybe I wasn't afraid of... (laughs) But I wasn't afraid of a little Irish woman. But... I respected her, and I didn't want to hurt her. This is the type of fear that God wants in his people. If you don't have faith, you better have the other kind of fear, the fright kind of fear. And notice it says, moved with fear, what did he do? He prepared an ark to the saving of his house. He had a burden for his family. Now, when it says his house, it didn't mean the you know, the wooden boards and nails. What it meant was his household, his family. We should have a burden for our family. In plain words, he was afraid that they would be lost. And because of this, he was reaching out to try to save not only his immediate family, but as many as others that would come. By the which he condemned the world. His example was a witness to others. I remember there was, a, there was a time when I used to smoke. And some of the kids I hung around with, they would smoke. But you know, when you stop smoking, do you ever notice that one of two things happen? Number one is the kids you used to hang around with, they'll go find other friends. Or they will try to get you to smoke. So they can say, oh, come on, you really want one here. And they try to take you down to their level. Because your example is a witness against them. I remember in one of the stop smoking seminars I was doing, um, the illustration was used that if you're trying to quit smoking and somebody offers you a cigarette, which is very common, what should you do? What should you do? Oh, that sounds good. Throw it down and stomp on it. A lot of times people say, oh, don't say, oh, no, I don't do that. You know what? They're going to keep teasing you. They're going to keep doing it. What you want to do is say, thank you. Reach out, take the cigarette, and in front of them, snap it in half and say, don't you wish you could do that? And hand it back to them. You think they're going to give you another one of those things if you're snapping those cigarettes that they paid good money for? They'll stop tempting you, you see. And we find here that 
the example of the righteous condemns the world. And Jesus was the best man who ever lived and what they do to him. You see, the world hated him because he was a good example and became heir of the righteous, which is of faith. Righteousness, which is of faith. So righteousness has to be connected with faith. Now, verse 8. By faith Abraham. Now, this is quite a while later. Abraham knew some of the uh, descendants. Shem was probably still alive about the time Abraham was born. Abraham was probably very young. And it says, by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed and went out, not knowing whether he went. In plain words, he went and he didn't know where we were going. It reminds me of when we first came to Michigan. I had a call to New Jersey. I had a call to New York State. And, you know, my family was in New York State. And my mother was sick and everything. And uh, we were going to take that particular call. And all of a sudden, Elder Ken Hutchins called me up. He used to be our educational superintendent. And he said, uh, we'd like to have you come out and be principal of a school up in Cadillac. Well, I, I had been an academy principal, and these other schools were big schools. I said, well, tell me about the school. And it only had, what, 40 kids in it or something? And I didn't know anybody in Cadillac. I didn't even know where Cadillac was. I thought everybody you know, west of New York were cowboys. You know, I thought you all rode horses and so forth. Just like when I went to Maine, I thought they all lived in igloos. But anyway, it was quite a quite a awakening to find out they're almost civilized. And anyway, I said, well, we'll come look at it. But I wasn't that serious about it. When I came out here, and we interviewed, and I liked the school, and I love the people. Still love the people in Cadillac area. And I remember we were on our way back home. We stopped in New Jersey, looked at that call. We stopped in New York and looked in that one. And I remember saying to my wife, let's be honest. There's no way we're going to go a 1,000 miles away when we can be right near our, our family. There's no way we're going to go to Michigan. We don't know anybody in Michigan. And so I went back. And one day, I came home from school. And my wife, uh, my wife said to me, you know, that pastor in Cadillac called up. And he said, I, he says, I've never done this before. He said, but I have a strong impression to call you. And... Uh, he said, I, I'm calling you to tell you the Lord wants you in Cadillac. And I said, yeah, you know these preachers. <laughs> and I began to think about it. And I called him back, and he told me the same thing. And so now we talked about it quite a bit, my wife and I. And at 10 o'clock at night on a Thursday, 
I had to give a reply to New York and to New Jersey whether I was going to go there. And this kept nagging at me. The Lord wants me in Michigan. At one minute to ten, I did not know where I was going. But at 10 o'clock, after praying about it, I said to Linda, we're going to Michigan. And when I told people about it, they said, well, who do you know out there? I said, well, I know Elder Hutchins. They said, well, yeah, but who, who else do you know? I don't know anybody out there. Where are you going to live? I don't know where I'm going to live. Well, uh, why are you going out there? Because the Lord is telling me he wants me to go to Michigan. Maybe we'll go out and try it a couple of years. See how it goes. Well, praise the Lord, like Abraham, we were venturing out in faith. We didn't know if we were going to live in a tent or not. He actually found us a nice house to live in. But we made our way out to Michigan. We were going to come out here and try for two years. That was in 1977. Here it is, 2016, long two years, you see. And you know what? I wouldn't have had it any other way because that nice large school in New York State I was going to go to with over 200 students, it never opened. The churches had a split among them, and they, they never opened that school. The one down in New Jersey, which was also a large school, they had financial problems, and they severely cut back on their program. And when we came out to Michigan, it was the perfect place to raise our kids. God knew, even though we didn't. And like Abraham, Abraham didn't know where he was going, but God says, go. He says, oh, where? He says, I'll tell you when you get there. Oftentimes when riding along, my wife will say, where are we going? I'll say, wait and see. <laughs> she hates when I say that. But wait and see. When we get there, then you'll know where we're at. <laughs> you know. And this is what God was saying to Abraham. Oftentimes we have to step out in faith, believing that God's going to take us from point A to point B, and we should be at point B. You see. Look at verse 9. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Now, God promised to give them Palestine, the Holy Land. You know what? Abraham never lived to really own any property there or to build a house. He lived in a tent. And his son never lived to see anything but a tent. And the same with his grandson. They went around wandering around from place to place, but yet they were to be possessors of that land. And they had to look for a city, but that city never physically materialized to them. Notice what it says in verse 10. It says, For he, speaking of Abraham, Looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, I have been to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, as you go wandering through the city, 
at certain places where archaeologists have been digging, they have dug all the way down to the foundation stones of Jerusalem. Those foundation stones were put there by heathen by the name of Jebusites. They were built by the Jebusites. They weren't even believers in the true God. Is this the city he was looking for? And it wasn't foundations, per se. They were just stones that they were built on, rocks. What was he looking at? He was looking at a different Jerusalem. His hope was in the new Jerusalem, who has foundations made of precious stones, as it tells us in the book of Revelation. And so Abraham, by faith, he said, God is the one who built that, not the Jebusites. So he was looking, he was looking beyond the millennium to the third coming of Christ when he comes down with the city to this earth. And a lot of times we sell short the future for the, for the joys of the present. Look at Hebrews 11.11. 11. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed. And was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Now, Sarah, I, I must admit, it says here Sarah had faith. But Sarah was long past menopause. I mean, she was, you know, 80. Uh, and when the Lord said to her, you're going to have a baby. She said, ha, 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 She started laughing. And he says, what you laughing at? I wasn't laughing. You know, she told a little white lie. God's colorblind. He doesn't know the difference between a white lie or a black lie. But he didn't scold her, but he did rebuke her. He said, ah, but you did laugh. You wait and see. You wait and see. And you know what? Nine months later, she had a little boy. Well, actually, it took a while before she actually had the child. But she had a little boy. And what do you think she named him? Laughter. That's what Isaac means, laughter. And God says, because you laughed, you name your son laughter. You see, she was laughing that God at her age could do a miraculous thing like that. And so we find that God promised to her, found fulfillment in her own lifetime. And she was just joyous because she received the promise that he had given her. Look at eleven twelve. Therefore, whenever you see therefore, it's connected with the previous thoughts. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Now that's interesting, because how many kids did Abraham have? He had, how many wives did he have? He had three wives. Hagar, she gave him the oldest one, which was 
Ishmael, from whom some of the Arabs come. Then Isaac, through whom the promised Messiah would come. And we find that the Hebrews or the Jewish people came from him. And then after Sarah dies, he marries again. He marries Keturah. And from Keturah, I don't remember if he had six or seven sons. And they are the peoples of the Middle East. One, uh, what's the name? Oh, I'm trying to think of. Oh, I can't think of some of those tribes that are north of Assyria and so forth. Anyway, they populated out that way. So most of the Middle East can trace back to Abraham. That's why he's claimed by the Jews, by the Christians, and by the Muslims as their ancestor, you see. And so, but God says, yeah, you're going to have a multitude, but they're going to be a multitude by faith. In plain words, you're not only going to have physical children, you're going to have adopted children. They are the ones who are adopted into your family because of their faith. Some of your physical descendants will never be in the kingdom. Their crown will be taken by those who have faith. And in the last days, we're going to see a lot of people fall away from the church. And at the last minute, you're going to find a lot of people who are sincere in heart come in and steal their crown. I don't like to say steal. Take their crown the crown that they have forsaken. And so we find that it's by faith there would be a multitude. Now, some people have speculated and said that the redeemed actually are to repopulate for the angels who have fallen. Now, I can't guarantee that. Uh, I don't remember that being in Scripture. All I know is there were a myriad of angels that fell a third of the angels of heaven. But will the redeemed amount to the number of those who have fallen? I don't know. But some are speculating in that direction. And that's what it is. Let's look at 11.13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed, that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. My friends, we are only here for a short period of time. We're just passing through. Did you ever read that poem, The Dash? Anybody ever seen that? I'm not going to recite it to you because I can't remember it. But did you ever notice that when a person dies on the tombstone, they have the year he was born and the year he died. And then there's a dash in between. That dash is his whole life. What are you doing with your dash? Are you dashing from the cradle to the grave? Or are we using our dash to have an impact upon the world around us? And it says, For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. We are passing through this life, moving toward the promised city that Abraham 
look forward to. Verse 15. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from which they, had, they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. Abraham could have turned around and gone back to uh, uh, Ur of the Chaldees. And we never would have heard from him again. But he didn't. He didn't. He, by faith, continued on following Christ. Look at 11.16. But now they desire a better country, that is, in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he hath prepared for them a city. Now, in the time of Noah, he prepared an ark for them, for their safety. He has prepared a city for us, for our security and our safety. Even when it comes down to this earth. By the way, did you ever stop to think that that great, big, beautiful, heavenly city is a mobile home? Right? It's out there in space, but it was built to move. And it's going to move down here to this earth, it tells us in Revelation. And so we find that God prepared this city for his people. As many people as wanted to be saved could have been in Noah's Ark. As many people as want to be saved can be in the holy city. It's big enough to accommodate any who wish to be there. Look at 17. And notice that God allows choice. He said, we could have gone back. They could have gone back, but they didn't. They went on. That's the difference between a champion and those who fall by the wayside in an athletic event. Look at 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was uh, tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Aha. Now what's it say? God so loved the world, he gave his what? Only begotten son. Now, Isaac wasn't his only begotten son. Ishmael was there before him, right? He's older. And he had kids afterwards. So how could he be the only begotten? We find that Jesus had brothers. The Bible tells us about his brothers. But he was the only begotten. What's it mean? The word only begotten is the Greek word monogenes. Monogenes. Word mono means one. Genes means um, begotten. You know, Genesis we get from it. Monogenes means unique. It means one of a kind. What made Isaac the one of a kind son? It was because of his faith. He was willing to be sacrificed. And Jesus was a one of a kind son of God. None other like him. How was he one of a kind? He was 100% divine, but he was also 100% human. Not even God the Father or the Holy Spirit are those. They're one or the other, but they're not both. Neither are you. But Jesus was both human and divine. He was one of a kind in all the universe of all the creatures. 
and it was through him was the promise of reconciliation where man and God would be brought together again, you see. And here, Abraham, because of his faith, when he lifted that knife, he had, before he even went up on that mountain, he, he turned to the servants, he said, stay here until we come back again. Well, he was going to offer Isaac, take his life, and yet he says, we'll come back again? He believed that he was going to have to actually kill his son, but he believed that God would resurrect his son. And God stopped him from the actual killing of Isaac. But with Jesus, God had to allow him to go all the way into the grave. But in either case, they were resurrected from a fate, you see. And so we find here, this is what he's referring to. Look at verse 18. Of whom it was said, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. In plain words, the Messiah was going to, Messiah is the seed. You remember Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman? All right, the seed would come through Isaac. The Messiah would come through Isaac. And accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. In plain words, Isaac believed he was going to be resurrected and that he was an example of the Messiah to come. You see that? Or am I just making it up? Am I the only one who sees that? In the, you see there, he's, he's saying that Isaac believed he was going to be resurrected. I mean... Yeah, Isaac. Let's look at verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Jacob and Esau are twins. Who's the older? Esau was. The Messiah should have come through Esau, but he didn't. He came through Jacob. That's why, even though Esau should have been the, um, what's the word? Um, Oh, come on. They use it with kings. Um, The first son inherits everything. What's that word? Oh, come on. Somebody help me. Anyway, the oldest son is supposed to inherit everything. But you see, Esau wasn't worthy. Now, these two boys were twins. One was born first. But there's something that sometimes people refer to, and sometimes it's valid, sometimes it isn't. Good twin, bad twin. We find that Jacob, actually, he was, you know, he was a deceiver. I don't know if you call him a good twin. He, he got bad twin, worst twin, you know. But he was a deceiver. His brother, he went out hunting and living life as he wanted to, just like Cain and Abel. And you see, God could promise, I mean, could bless Jacob, the second son, because he was a man of faith. When he saw he was wrong, he repented. Esau, when he was pointed out he was wrong, he didn't repent. 
He just sinned some more. Yes, ma'am. That's right. But you see, God isn't restricted as to what he can do. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. But anyway, Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. You're seeing the great controversy there between Jacob and Esau. One, by faith, trusts in God. The other doesn't. He trusts in his own works. And one of the things that got him in trouble was intermarriage with unbelievers. That needs to be a lesson that we need to teach our young people today. Uh, that they shouldn't be intermarrying with unbelievers because they can phew, uh, quickly uh, lead them astray. Remember, spirituality is like water. It will always seek the lowest possible point. And when you link up with someone who spiritually is weaker than you, you're the one that's going to give in, not them, in many cases. Not always, but in many cases. So we need to be careful of that because there's spiritual examples of that that brought great woe upon God's people. Look at Hebrews 11.21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, he blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. He was old, he was feeble, and he propped himself up in bed, and he just leaned on his staff. And he put his hands on the head of Joseph's two sons. Now, he was supposed to give the greater blessing to the older one, who was whom? Who was the older? Who were the two sons? Manasseh and Ephraim. Right? He was supposed to give the, uh, the blessing to the older. But what did he do? He crossed his hands and gave the greater blessing to the younger one, which made Joseph upset. He said, come on, Pop, straightens his hands around. And he says, no, I got it right the first time. Because God knew what he was doing. Look at verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandments concerning his bones. How many of you are aware of the fact that when the children of Israel left Egypt, they carried up the casket or the body of Joseph and took him into the promised land? You knew that. Yeah. You see, Joseph had died not only decades, but hundreds of years before they left. But he knew, he knew that they were going to leave Egypt. And he says, when you go, take me with you. You see. And he had a pretty fancy uh, grave because, don't forget, he was prime minister of Egypt. So they took him with him. Look at uh, 11.23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months by his parents because they saw that he was a proper child. Now, what does it mean, a proper child? In my new King James, instead of a proper child, it said a beautiful child. He was a beautiful little baby. 
and they didn't want the king killing him. He was not only beautiful outwardly, but apparently God could see his character that it was beautiful too. And they were not afraid of the king's command. Isn't it interesting that there are two women who have gone down in history for disobeying the king, the two midwives, Pua and what was the other one's name? I can't remember. Anyway, they've gone down in history because they defied the king and they let the little Hebrew children be born. They wouldn't perform abortions on these kids. And because of this, they were risking their own lives because it was through this child, Moses, that they would find deliverance. Look at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come of years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused to be called the heir apparent to the throne. Now, there's a question who, uh, who Pharaoh's daughter was. You know, uh, that's very interesting. Some say it was Hatshepsut. Um, some, and that was a Nefertiri, uh, Nefertiri, but it might have been Hatshepsut. But the point is, he would have become king, but he didn't want to. He chose to live the life of faith and live with the slaves or be among them. And so it's very interesting, uh, that whole story. But Paul doesn't have time to go into that. Choosing rather to suffer the affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. Now, Josephus and some of the ancient Jewish historians claimed that Moses had become quite a general. He had become a military genius in the war against uh, between Egypt and uh, I forget what the other country was. I think it was uh, the uh, Sudanese, Namibia or something, that he, he was the one that led and gained, conquered in that battle. So he had all the wisdom of the Egyptians, but yet he wanted instead to be on God's side instead of the side of the Pharaoh. He would rather suffer with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of this world, which would lead to nothing. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Moses apparently knew that the Messiah was going to be born and that he had a share in the great holy city, the New Jerusalem, that Abraham looked forward to. And he said, I want that. That has recompense of reward. In plain words, that's pay enough for me, is to be a part of it. And then look at verse 27. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. He ran away, it says. It wasn't because he was afraid of the king. He had killed this Egyptian. And I imagine he realized that they were out to get him. But that is the real reason. He, he wanted to get out of Egypt, it says. 
for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood. He's talking now about the sanctuary service. Lest that he destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Who's the one that wanted to destroy the firstborn? It's Satan. Satan. Satan working through Pharaoh. Later on, Satan works through Herod. And then he works through various powers through the years. Look at verse 29. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians uh, are saying to do were drowned. The Egyptians followed him, and they drowned when the waters came back in. Now, there's a debate. Did he go through the Red Sea, or did he, he go through the Sea of Reeds? Now, there are some who teach today he went through the Sea of Reeds. There's a story, you probably have heard it, about a little boy who in his Sunday school class, he was reading the story about Moses going through the Red Sea and how God parted the water and they went on dry land. And the Sunday school teacher said, no, no. He says, that's a myth. Actually, the children of Israel went through the Sea of Reeds and the water was only about six inches deep. And the little boy looked at him and said, Praise the Lord! It's a bigger miracle than I thought. God drowned the whole Egyptian army in six inches of water. <laughs> you see, God knows what he's talking about. He wiped the army out when they went through the Red Sea. And notice, verse 30, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. God was testing their faith. I mean, he could have had them walk around once and then just went, bah, and down came the walls. But he didn't. He had them walk around in silence, too. And that made the people inside nervous, and it made them nervous, too. Why, why? And then God says, now, all together, shout. And they shout. But notice he had them go seven times before those walls came down. That reminds me of Naaman. Naaman had to wash in the river seven times. Six times he came up and he still had leprosy. But when he came up the seventh time, he was healed. He had rest from his disease. And we have the seven days of the week, the six days for us, the seventh, is when we heal from our fatigue of the previous six and gives us strength to go forward. And so they were about to enter into God's promised land of rest. Notice here, by faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. Now it's interesting. Rahab was a harlot a prostitute. She was a Canaanite. But she was an outcast as far as the Jews were concerned. But she became the ancestress of King David and of Christ. You see, she married 
Once they, the Jews, you know, uh, the Israelites conquered the land, she married a guy by the name of Solomon. Not Solomon, but Solomon. She married Solomon, and they had a little boy by the name of Boaz. Sound familiar? The book of Ruth? Boaz, whose mother was a Canaanite, he turns around and marries Ruth, who is a Moabitess. What does this tell us? That not only King David, the great king of Israel, but the Messiah Jesus, he has both Jews and Gentiles in his ancestry. He is a universal savior. And God loves people all over the world. If they are obedient to him, if they have faith in him and trust in him. And that hasn't changed. And verse 32. And what shall I say more? Now he goes into the general catalog. He gave specific people. But now he's running out of time. I guess it was getting near lunchtime or something. And he he lumps them all together. And he just talks about these people. He says, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak also pronounced Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, and of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets. Now let's look at these guys. He's calling them men of faith. Gideon, Gideon had some problems in his life, as you look at that story. And what about Barak or Barak? When the Lord said, go in and fight the enemy, he said, I'm not going to go unless this woman, the prophetess, goes with me. And she says to him, okay, I'll go with you, but you're not going to get the victory. It's going to be given to a woman. And Jael is the one that, uh, that uh, drives the stake through Sisera and gains the victory for them. He was just the general, but she was, he wasn't the hero of that battle, you see. And then there's Samson. Hmm. Samson was kind of a philanderer, wasn't he? He had a short temper. He went around the place, burning up his enemies' fields, ripping up their gates and carrying them off. Uh, You know, he had some problems. But yet, he's listed with the men of faith. He ended up committing suicide, didn't he? He got between two pillars and he says, let me die with the, the Philistines. Poosh! And down comes the whole temple. Well, I don't know if I'd call it suicide, but he died delivering the people. But if he had lived properly, he might have been able to deliver them without dying in the process. But yet, he is listed here as a man of faith. In spite of all the goofs and, and number of times he fell. And Jephthah. Jephthah was a juvenile delinquent. He was an illegitimate child, technically. He grew up to be um, the town bully. They kicked him out, and then when the enemy came in, they didn't have anybody that would stand up against the enemy, and they said, let's call Jephthah. He's a pretty good fighter. They call him back, and he says, hey, I'll help you out, only if you let me be in charge of the nation, be the judge of the nation. They said, yeah, we'll do anything. And so he does and he wins. And then he makes a promise. He he had faith in God, though. 
And he made a promise, when I come back from battle, the first thing that greets me, I will offer to you as a sacrifice. What was the first thing that greeted him? His daughter. His little daughter. Was he going to offer her up as a human sacrifice? No. He talked to God about it. And what he did was he never allowed her to marry. And so we find that these people had problems. I mean, David, he was a lousy father. And you know what? Samuel didn't do so well with his kids either, did he? Nor did Levi and some of the prophets. So we find that these were people who had failings just like we do. They were human like us. But because of their faith, God considers them heroes and champions. You can be a a champion in the modern book of Acts that's being written. Your name may be listed among the heroes when Jesus comes back. Look here, verse 33. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promise, stopped the mouths of lions. I wonder who who had any uh, experience with a lion. What about Daniel, right? It was his faith that delivered him there. And quenched the violence of fire. What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness they were made strong. Waxed valiant in fight. Turned to flight the armies of the aliens, the invaders. Women received their dead, raised to life again. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Fox's Book of of Martyrs has a lot of illustrations of those who could have been delivered but chose not to. Jesus could have gone back to heaven, but he chose to stick it out. And then it says, and of others. They had trial of cruel mockeries. They were made fools of. Scourging, even Jesus was. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They suffered. They were stoned, I think of Stephen. They were sawn asunder. Stop and think about that. Who was sawn asunder? The prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, I don't know if they used boards or if they used a hollow log, but they stuffed him in a hollow log and cut the log in half. Isaiah, that's how he met his fate, according to the tradition. And yet, he's a hero of God. And then they talk about others who wandered about in sheepskin and goatskin, like John the Baptist and others, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And it says, of whom the world was not worthy. These people had character. These people had faith that the world couldn't match. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. They they were willing to give up the conveniences of this world because they believed that God had a better promise for them. And my friends, that's what God has for you. You know, a lot of people are willing to give up the faith for 
drugs and alcohol, the pleasures of this world. Oh, goody, it's so wonderful to have a hangover. Oh, how, how joyous it is to vomit every morning. You know, is this what we're giving up the promise for? When we could have a land where all these things are behind. Look at verse 40. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Aha! Say that again, Paul. That they without us should not be made perfect. What is that saying? When I die, I go directly to heaven. I died 3,000 years ago. And I've been in heaven for 3,000 years enjoying the promise of the new Jerusalem and the peace and tranquility. But you're not here yet. Right? Is that what it's saying? Uh Uh-uh. It's saying that these people remain in their grave until we all are taken up. The twinkling of the eye that changes those who are alive so that they can no longer die. Those who come up out of their grave are in the perfection of health. They are all perfected together. You see, that undermines immortality of the soul right there. And then it says this in our final summary. In looking at these verses that we find in chapter 11, which is quite long, I think it's about the longest chapter in the book of Hebrews, if I remember correctly. But 40 verses we've gone through. And what has he done? He starts with defining what faith is. And then the chapter is a catalog of those people who develop that kind of faith, constantly looking to the future, constantly looking to the promises, and willing to forsake the conveniences of this life for something better. These people are given to us to encourage the Hebrew people and our generation as well to endure in our faith to the end. And thus, that leads us right into the beginning of chapter 12 because the first verse of chapter 12 begins with the word therefore, which connects them. It says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with earnestness the race that is set before us. You see how chapter 11 leads right into chapter 12. And he's bringing to a culmination of what he's trying to say is the promise to God's people. This is why this chapter is such a powerful chapter. And when you you get time, reread it and study it and look up the characters who went through these. And so with that, are there any questions before we go to our, our quiz? We'll have just enough time for the quiz. Isn't that convenient? All right, let's look at question number one. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, is the definition of what? Write the word in. Don't tell it. Write it in. Okay? Question number two. The first martyr was whom? 
write his name or her name. Number three, it is impossible to please God without what? Write it in. Number four, who was sawn asunder? Number five, who was a beautiful child or a proper child? And then number six, the bonus question, who was Jacob's brother? Okay, you ready? All right, let's look at the answers. Number one, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen is the definition of faith. Number two, the first martyr was Abel. Number three, it is impossible to please God without faith. Number four, who was sawn asunder? It was Isaiah. Who was the beautiful or proper child? It was Moses. And the brother of Jacob was Esau. All right, so your homework. Reread chapter 11. And you might want to look up some of these characters and their stories. And then read for next week chapters 12 and 13. Next week, we're going to try to combine those two lessons and complete the book of Hebrews. So I hope that this has been a blessing to you. And let's bow our heads and we'll have a word of prayer together. Gracious Lord, we thank you for these heroes of faith. We thank you for the promises that you give us. And that all things will be made new. That there's a holy city. That there's a resurrection of the righteous. And that we can be forever in thy presence and with those who were heroes of faith. Strengthen us, O Lord. Help us to stand for the right, though the heavens fall. Fill us with your spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.